0: you're just joining us this uh, summer, we're doing a series on the book of Proverbs. And each week we're opening up the book of Proverbs and looking at, to see what it has to tell us about becoming wise, about what it means to be wise people. We've talked about things like speech last week. And this week we're talking about marriage, we're talking about wise marriage. What does Proverbs have to tell us about marriage? Um, before we read these verses, you'll find these on page 4 of your bulletin. Um, Let's, let's pray together. Let's pray. Father, again, of course, we come into this room in just a variety of different places. Um, some of us encouraged, some of us very much confident that you speak to us and that you speak to us in your word. Some of us, uh, to say the least, are, are very unsure of those things. We're not sure that you're good. We might even be sure that you exist. Maybe we're certainly not sure that you would speak to us that you have anything to say into our real day-to-day lives. Father, we pray that you would show yourself to us now. We pray that you would give us your wisdom, that you would open our hearts to wisdom. And we pray uh, that even now, for people like us, that you would teach us a little bit more about what it means to follow you in marriage and to have wise marriages. We need your help in our marriages, so we ask for it. In Jesus' name, amen. Again, you'll find these verses on uh, page 4 of your order of worship. Why should you be intoxicated, my son, with a forbidden woman and embrace the bosom of an adulteress? For a man's ways are before the eyes of the Lord, and he ponders all his paths. The iniquities of the wicked ensnare him. He is held fast in the cords of his sin. He dies for lack of discipline. Because of his great folly, he is led astray. For the commandment is a lamp and and the teaching a light, and the reproofs of discipline are the way of life to preserve you from the evil woman, from the smooth tongue of the adulteress. Do not desire her beauty in your heart. Do not let her capture you with her eyelashes. For the price of a prostitute is only a loaf of bread, but a married woman hunts down a precious life. Can a man carry fire next to his chest and his clothes not be burned? Or can one walk on hot coals and and his feet not be scorched? So is he who goes into his neighbor's wife. None who touches her will go unpunished. He who commits adultery lacks sense. He who does it destroys himself. He will get wounds and dishonor, and his disgrace will not be wiped away. An excellent wife is the crown of her husband, but she who brings shame is like rottenness in his bones. Better is a dinner of herbs where love is than a fattened ox and hatred with it. He who finds a wife finds a good thing and obtains favor from the Lord. House and wealth are inherited from fathers, but a prudent wife is from the Lord. It's better to live on a corner of a housetop than in a house shared with a quarrelsome wife. It is better to live in a desert land than with a quarrelsome and fretful woman. A continual dripping on a rainy day and a quarrelsome wife are alike. To restrain her is to restrain the wind or to grasp oil in one's right hand. Interesting collection of verses, isn't it? <laughs> I can hear the questions as they're being thought right now. Hopefully we'll get to them. But let me just say this first. This morning as I got up and as I was getting dressed for church, I realized I was putting on the suit that I that I tend to wear when I perform weddings. And I've worn it for the weddings of some of y'all when I've performed your weddings. It seemed like an appropriate thing to wear today as we um as we talk about marriage. Now, the Bible from cover to cover has lots of to say about marriage and the temptation is to try to say it all and I promise I won't (laughs) so what we're going to do is we're going to try to say just make a couple points the book of Proverbs says here and as you can probably guess just from reading some of the verses it it, it feels like um, you know a a stiff uh, you know cold drink of water on a hot day to read some of these verses to think what is God trying to tell us about marriage here okay so here's what we're going to see this morning We've been talking about Proverbs and being wise. If we are going to be wise people, then we have to be people who have wise marriages. Okay, well, what does that mean? Well, in the words of Proverbs and in these verses of Proverbs, um, it tells us three things about wise marriage. It tells us about the power of marriage, and it tells us about the temptation in marriage, and it speaks of the hope for marriage. Okay, the power of marriage, temptation in marriage, and the hope for marriage. Okay, first, the the power of marriage. Look on your list there at um, chapter 18, verses 22 and 19, 14. He who finds a wife finds a good thing and and obtains favor from the Lord. House and wealth are inherited from fathers, but a prudent wife is from the Lord. Okay, now we we need to say something in general about these verses and, and everything that we read here this morning. I can only imagine that it's possible if you're a woman and you're reading this, you're thinking, this seems a little unfair. <laughs> okay, wh- why is the bad person got to be the woman? You know, I mean, if the, all, all these verses about adultery, for example, they speak of the dangers of a woman who might draw you away. Okay, let me just simply say this. Rem- remember the rhetorical situation of the book of Proverbs. The whole book is, is pitched to us as the advice of, and teaching of a father and a mother to their son. Okay? So if you're going to speak to your son about marriage, then when you talk about the person you enter marriage into, you're going to talk about, you're going to talk about the wife. But this speaks to all of us, and you can spin it both ways. Okay? All of these things tell us something true about the dangers of, any, of maybe entering into a marriage with a husband who will be bad for you. Okay, so these, these verses speak to both men and women, but in the, in the rhetorical context here, of course, he is speaking to a son. and He's talking to him about entering into a marriage. So he speaks to him about the good of marriage from the angle that you would address a son. So he says, you know, here in these first couple of verses we looked at in chapter 18 and 19, he who finds a wife, he who finds a husband, finds a thing that is good, he obtains favor from the Lord. Houses and wealth are inherited from fathers, but a prudent wife, a prudent husband is from the Lord. The first thing we see here about the power of marriage is that a spouse is a gift from God. Okay, To find a spouse, to find a good spouse, to find a wise spouse, a prudent spouse is a gift from God. It's a good gift. In other words, marriage is a good thing. The Bible speaks of marriage as a great thing. It is a gift for us. God loves marriage. He created it. And he created it for our good and for his glory. And some of us need to be reminded of the fact that marriage is a good thing. Now, some of us who are single need to be reminded of that because a couple of things might have happened. One, you might just be so disillusioned with marriage ever happening to you, 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 you want to think that maybe it's not such a good thing after all. Or maybe you've grown up in a family where you've seen all the ways marriage can go wrong and you're very suspicious about getting into marriage yourself. Maybe you need to hear again that the Bible says, stem to stern, that marriage is a good thing. God made it for our good. But the second thing we see about marriage and the power of it is not just that it's good, but it has immense power in our lives. Look at um, chapter 12, verse 4. An excellent wife is the an excellent husband. An excellent wife is the crown of her husband, but she who brings shame is like rottenness in his bones. Okay, what what is this verse saying and what's it presupposing? Well, it's saying that marriage is the relationship that has the most power in our lives. Marriage is the central relationship for human beings. And it, for most people, they experience that at some point in your lives. Now, we're not going to talk about the calling of singleness. We're going to address singleness later. But for most people, at some point in your life, God brings marriage into your life. And it becomes the central, most powerful relationship that you can have. And if you're married, you've experienced this before. If your marriage, if your marriage feels... Um, Strong, okay. Then your life is gonna feel fundamentally secure. Okay, I mean maybe you've you've experienced times like this in your life where everything else might be falling apart in your life. Things are bad at work. You've had a falling out with a close friend, a struggle with your health maybe. But if your marriage is strong, if you are close to your spouse, if you're experiencing the deep friendship there that marriage was meant to bring. If there's relational openness and love and acceptance, then you find that you can actually handle all the rest. That that puts everything else in perspective. Because those things that are crushing you around you are out there, but your marriage is the thing that is closest to your life. Your spouse is the person who is closest to your life, the person that you've invited in, the person that you are bonded to. And those things out there won't crush you because your marriage is strong and things are strong in here where it's close to you. Everything else is happening on the outside of you, but your spouse is the one that you let in at the deepest level. I mean, think about some of the images, even in the first couple chapters of Genesis, that the Bible uses for marriage. That when a, uh, when a man leaves his mother and father, he cleaves to his wife. He is joined to her. He is bound to her. Um, Adam, first bit of poetry in the Bible he looks at Eve and he says bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh you are the thing, the person closest to me but that's not, the only, that's not the only side of things look at the other side of things the other half of this verse she who brings shame is like rottenness in your bones maybe you've noticed this side of things everything in your life can be going extraordinarily well better than ever You are at the high point of your career. And everything you touch just seems to turn to gold. You have the respect of your coworkers and your friends. You're a pillar of the community. You're a faithful ministry leader here in the church. You have perfect health. You're about to run your first marathon. You're in the best shape you've been in since you were 20. Everything is going. Your golf swing, all of it. it's all coming together for you. But you know that if your marriage is going badly... Your marriage has the power to override all the other good things in your life. Everything can look fine on the outside, but if things are falling apart on the inside, then your life has no strength because your spouse, again, is the one who is closest to you. They have the end. They are the one who speak most powerfully in your life. If your career is going well, you can't enjoy it. If your health is good, it seems of no consequence if you've retired well, if you've achieved the life that you've spent all your years working for, if you've bought your house, you have the free time. Your golf game is getting better and better. You have the time to read all those books you'd always wanted to and never had the time. Your garden never looked so beautiful. But if your marriage is sick, if your spouse is distant, then you find, you find that the two of you don't really talk, no longer connect. There's no more sparkle in each other's lives, in each other's eyes. Then it feels like there is this very real rottenness in your bones. Something is eroding your life from the inside out. Now it might not be readily apparent to your acquaintances and your friends, but you know that you're being eaten away from the inside out because marriage has that kind of power in our lives, for good or for ill. It's the most powerful relationship in your life. Now, remember, again, the rhetorical situation in this book. The father is addressing the unmarried son. And part of the reason he talks about this is because he wants to impress on his son that you need to make a good choice when you get married. Okay, He's speaking to those who are free, who are not yet married, who still have the place in their life to choose. And he says you need to marry well. Look what he says about marriages, uh, about about poor marriages or marrying badly. Chapter 15, verse 17: Better is a dinner of herbs where love is, than a fattened ox and hatred with it. Down to 21:9: It's better to live in the, course of a ho- in the corner of a housetop in a house shared with a co- than in a house shared with a quarrelsome wife. Better to live in a desert than when a, with a quarrelsome life, like a like a constant dripping on a rainy day is what it's like to live with a quarrelsome, disagreeable, angry husband or wife. What's he saying? There are things worse than singleness. And when you're single <laughs> And you know, actually Proverbs has that effect. They have these ironic spin, and some of those should just make us should make us laugh and sometimes laugh uneasily. But he's warning him. What's he saying? You know what it's like when you are single and it, is, it becomes so very easy for some to, to, to look over to the greener grass of, of married life. If only I were married, I'd no longer be lonely. I'd no longer have these struggles. I would have somebody, yes, who was close to me, who was the one who I let in. I would have that and the grass would be greener. And God does say unapologetically that marriage is a good and a beautiful thing. But he also says that our choices matter. There is something worse than being single. It's being married with a quarrelsome person. As it says, "You feel lonely when you're single." Well, he says, being married to a quarrelsome person is like being alone in a desert. It's like being uh, exposed on a roof in a corner by yourself. There can there can be worse things, and so he says, "Beware. It's possible." to make a really bad choice in the person that you marry. Now, this leaves untouched all the questions about what really does make a good choice. The writer of Proverbs simply says, Weigh your choices wisely and carefully. And for many of us, you don't have to look very far in your life to see the effects of marriages that have gone very badly all around you and maybe within your own family. 1517 is interesting when he says, Better a dinner of herbs where love is than a fattened ox and hatred with it. Another way to say that in Williamsburg might be, Better ramen noodles with a healthy, thriving marriage than dinner at Opus 9 <laughs> with hatred and mistrust and a marriage that's derailed. Be careful who you marry. Don't marry badly. Now, what about all of us who are married? The book of Proverbs is addressed on its surface to those here who who are not married. What happens if you found that your marriage really is hard? And in some sense you feel like maybe I have married the wrong person. We all find ourselves feeling that way, at least from time to time in marriage. There will be the day, if it hasn't happened, that you wake up and say, what in the world was I thinking? And what in the world happened to the person that I married? And there's a spectrum here. Everybody is going to taste some of that. And some people taste it very deeply and very painfully. What does the book of Proverbs have to say to those of us who find mostly disappointment and disconnect, find a marriage that's become angry and shriveled, one that seemed to start so well but went so wrong, one in which maybe there was initially this joy and connection, but now... Time seems to have dulled the affections and dulled the friendships and frayed the nerves and brought out not the best but maybe even the worst for both a husband and a wife. What about for us? The writer of Proverbs goes on to say that not only does marriage have power, that goes on to tell us that there is a temptation that you need to resist and there's a hope that you need to embrace. Okay, first the temptation that you need to resist. And the book of Proverbs upholds the central temptation in marriage in a very stark way. It says you must steer clear of, you must avoid at all costs, you must guard yourself against adultery. And as I this passage, these passages this week, I was just struck by the amount of ink the writer of Proverbs spends on this. There's an extended discourse about this in chapter 5 and another one in chapter 6 and another one in chapter 7. He thought, this father thought, it is incredibly important that I warn my children. And scripture thinks it's incredibly important that it warn us about the danger and the risk of adultery. Uh, Look at chapter 5, that first passage there, the first couple verses. This is 15 through 17. Drink water from your own cistern, flowing water from your own well. Should your springs be scattered abroad, streams of water in the street, let them be for yourself alone and not for strangers with you. First thing we see here is that marriage is exclusive. It was meant to be exclusive. And this passage here is speaking specifically, though metaphorically, about sex and marriage. That there is a right place for this. And it is an exclusive thing between a husband and a wife, and it goes on to say in these verses that adultery is a real and life-threatening danger. Okay, and Proverbs tells us in these verses it tells us three things about adultery. First, it talks about the allure of adultery. Um, look at verse uh, chapter six, verse twenty-three. Uh, the commandment is a lamp, a teaching, a light, reproofs of discipline, or the way of life to preserve you from the evil woman, from the smooth tongue of the adulteress, or to preserve you from the evil man and the one who might seduce you and turn you aside. Do not desire her beauty in your heart. Do not let her capture you with her eyelashes. For the price of a prostitute is only a loaf of bread, but a married woman hunts down a precious life. The phrases he uses, do not desire her beauty in your heart. Do not let her capture you with her eyelashes. And this might be the great lie of adultery. It just happened. I I couldn't help myself. If only my spouse were more fill-in-the-blank, then this never would have happened. I never would have gotten myself into this situation. I never would have fallen for this kind of temptation. But the writer of Proverbs emphasizes our responsibility. Adultery does not happen to you. It does not happen to us. It is something you actively pursue. It's something you actively give yourself to. In the words of Proverbs here, what are you desiring in your heart? What is the thing you are desiring at the core of your being? What is the thing that you are feeding yourself on? Because our actions come out of the desires of our heart and where we let the desires of our heart go. We said the great temptation of singleness is to say, you know, if only I were married. When you're single, this can become the, the focus of all your thoughts, all your plans, all your dreams, and it can corrode your life. Again, because you're always looking over the fence, dreaming about how it's so much greener over there, um, and you miss, end up missing the life God has given you right here and now. Well, the great temptation of marriage might be, not life would be better if I were married, but life would be better if only I weren't married to this person, or if only I were married to this other person. Brings up the question for us, what are we desiring in our heart? What dream of a different life are you warming yourself with right now? Because this warning against adultery from uh, the book of Proverbs it isn't just simply wise advice from a wise father. it echoes the seventh commandment which says do not do not commit adultery. And if you remember from Matthew 5 when Jesus speaks of this, he takes that commandment do not commit adultery and he and he presses it further and deeper into our lives then maybe we'd be comfortable um, than maybe we're comfortable with because he doesn't say he, Say, adultery is simply this thing that you that you do. It springs from this person that you are, and it involves much more than what we might literally consider the act of adultery. Matthew five, twenty seven, Jesus says, You've heard that it was said, You shall not commit adultery. You've heard it, it's one of the Ten Commandments. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. So what's he saying? You might be the, not be the kind of per, you might be the kind of person who would who would never actually commit the literal act of adultery, because maybe you are too conscious of the pain that it would bring to other people, and maybe you're too aware of the shame it would bring into your own life. Maybe you're just too timid or too scared to actually risk everything like that. But you will stare, and you will dream, and so maybe everywhere you look, you see more to fantasize about. Maybe the way this plays out for you is you lock yourself in your room so you can surf the Internet looking for more and more to fill this unending appetite of your eyes. Every picture, every glance, thinking this would give me the life I so desperately want. Or maybe for you, when Jesus' words, looking with lustful intent, maybe it's not outward about outward beauty for you at all. It's not about looks at all. And maybe it's not even for you fundamentally about sex. Maybe your eyes are drawn not to, see, not to what you see on the outside, but what you see on the inside. Maybe your lust isn't physical. Maybe it's emotional. You look at somebody and you think something like this. There is someone who would really listen to me. He or she would value me. They would make me feel like I have worth that I'm beautiful, that I'm still fun and vibrant and desirable. Maybe that's what lust looks like for you. You might not be lusting for sex, but you're lusting for the thing that sex is meant to highlight and draw from, deep oneness, deep connection, appreciation, respect. See, the writer of Proverbs reminds us that adultery is alluring, and so he says to us, beware. Okay, the allure of adultery. Second thing is the cost of adultery. Uh, back in chapter 6, starting at 26, several, several verses in there. Can a man carry fire next to his chest and his clothes not be burned? Or can one walk on hot coals and his feet not be scorched? So is he who goes into his neighbor's wife. None who touches her will go unpunished. He who commits adultery lacks sense. He who does it destroys himself. He will get wounds and dishonor and his disgrace will not be wiped away. What is the writer of Proverbs saying that adultery is going to cost us our lives? What does he say? Can you carry fire next to your chest and not be burned by it? Can you walk on hot coals and have that not scorch your feet? He says it brings punishment. It brings wounds and dishonor. Back up in chapter 5, towards the end of that quote, it says, "...the iniquities of the wicked ensnare him, and he is held fast in the cords of his sin." He dies for lack of discipline, and because of his great folly, he is led astray. Iniquity, adultery, it wraps itself around our lives and brings uh, destruction to us. It creates jealousy, sometimes even violent, offended spouses. It burns not only you, but your spouse, your children, the people around you. When you engage in it, you think that you are finally finding life and wholeness But instead, you find yourself bound up in the cords of your own sin. In the words of Proverbs, adultery is folly writ large, wandering from the path of life and into the wild where you will ultimately only find death. Okay, the cost of adultery. And the third thing about adultery, it tells us, is the audience of adultery, who is God himself. Uh, This is chapter 21 of verse 5. For a man's ways are before the eyes of the Lord, and he ponders all his paths. See, this father instructing his son about the dangers of adultery reminds him of what is true for us all the time in every situation of our life. God sees us, and he knows. When you are hidden away, when you think by, you are by yourself and that nobody can see you and no one knows, God is there. We are never alone. We are an open book to him. There is nothing about us that is unseen from his eyes. Not only does God see our see our ways, it says that he ponders them, he considers them, he weighs them, he evaluates them. In other words, God knows what is going on in our lives, and he cares about what is going on in our lives. Now, if what Jesus said is true, that it runs much more deeply than simply this overt action of adultery that it runs right through our hearts then um, there's something here I think for all of us that's incredibly sobering whether you are um, on the verge of literal adultery or you are committing adultery in your heart all the time what is the hope for our marriage we said that if you're struggling in your marriage there's something there is a temptation you need to avoid there's also something here for us that we have to embrace Okay, and the writer of Proverbs holds up two things in hope for us. The first thing he says, he tells us to remember two things. And the first thing he says is, remember your spouse. Look back in chapter 5. This is verse 18 and 19. Let your fountain be blessed. Rejoice in the wife of your youth, a lovely deer, a graceful doe. Let her breasts fill you at all times with delight. Be intoxicated always in her love. He says, remember your spouse. Remember... Um, in the words here, the wife of your youth, the husband of your youth, the one you gave yourself to, the one you said you could not live without, the one you bound yourself to with vows of marriage, to love and honor and cherish for better or for worse, in sickness and in health, for richer or for poorer, as long as you both shall live. Calls her a lovely dear, a graceful doe, If you have let yourself forget the beauty and the value of your spouse that you once saw, if over time your eyes have become dimmed to the beauty and glory of your spouse, then the Father tells his son and Proverbs tells us, rub the dust out of our eyes. Remember what is there. Remember what you first saw. He says, be intoxicated in her love. We're exhorted to this. Be drunk in the love of your spouse is what it says. Again, as I'm wearing my marriage suit, I'm thinking about the fact that the weddings that I performed, when I'm standing up here with um, a young man and a young woman giving themselves to each other, I could read these verses to them, and it would make no sense to them. (laughs) Because they would be thinking, of course I'm going to... Why would you have to exhort me to be intoxicated in the love of this person that I'm giving myself to this day? Because they have this beautiful and radiant, and let me say true, picture of what they're stepping into in marriage. But the wise father talks to his son and he says, one day you are going to forget that. And some days you're going to have trouble remembering that. Remember your spouse. Remember what is there clear the dust out of your eyes again. Because he says, the wise father to his son, over the long haul, if your marriage is going to survive and if it's going to thrive, then you are going to have to choose to love. You're going to have to choose to delight, choose to remember what is good and beautiful and true. Choose to give yourself to this person no matter what, in the hard times as well as the good. Everything that comes so naturally and felt so simple on the day of your wedding there are going to be times when you're going to have to think and deliberately dwell on these and purposely ponder them and if you look at the context of these verses the father is talking to his son and specifically he's talking about the context of sex and this is sheer genius that this is what he points to (laughs) Because he prepares his son for a lifetime of marriage. He speaks specifically about the delight and the joy to be had in sex. And it's genius because if a husband and wife are ever going to love each other well this way, the way these verses describe in this particular aspect of their relationship, then if you're married, you know you have to be loving your spouse in all the other ways as well. Or this never works the way it should either. The husband and wife are going to rejoice in each other this way when they've been married a week and a year and 10 years and 50 years, then they're going to have to go on and do the hard work of loving and delighting in each other in all areas of life. All the mundane things. Cleaning the dishes. Making the coffee. Encouraging each other in our struggles. Daily dying to selfishness. And the list goes on and on. Because... As we said, sex will never be the deep joy that the Father says right here it is meant to be, unless we are serving and loving and knowing and caring for each other in all these other ways. So when the Father says, may you delight in this, He says, may your entire marriage, your entire married life, be a joy and be radiant and bring you joy. If there's going to be hope for our marriage, then we have to remember our spouse. But the second thing, because that will never be enough, is that we have to also remember Jesus. Because Jesus, who is called the great physician, is also the great physician of our marriage. Jesus came not only healing people's bodies, but also their hearts. came not only to bring physical healing, but real and deep forgiveness, and real and deep relational forgiveness and healing as well. If we're ever going to know this kind of life, then we have to know the actual forgiveness and healing that comes only by Jesus. And let me just say that if you are in the middle of a situation like this where your marriage feels very hard, there's not possibly enough that we can say right now to deal with all those points. But let me say this, that you are in need of the work and the healing work of Jesus, and it may well be a struggle, and do not go it alone. Don't let yourself be isolated in that. You need friends and counselors and encouragers who are going to stand next to you and help you in the middle of your marital struggles. If that is going on in your life, look for help. And one place you can look for help, come to the session of our church. We are charged with the spiritual welfare and care of you. Come and let people bring the healing of Jesus into your life. Do not go it alone. For some of you, it's going to take a lot of courage to come and make that step. But the second thing, it bring, that does bring hope, I think, for those of us who are who are wounded and hurt by this. But maybe you are the person or you are the person, were the person being addressed in Proverbs. Literal adultery or adultery of the heart. We have all been unfaithful in some way and we are all Stained by this to some degree or another. And Jesus is not only the great physician and the great physician of marriage, he is also the friend of prostitutes and sinners. Think about the words Proverbs uses for what comes in the wake of adultery wounds and dishonor and disgrace. Father warns the son about all the harm and destruction that's going to come into his life if he commits adultery. But you see, Proverbs also doesn't tell the whole story. Because Jesus doesn't run from our disgrace but he steps right into it. If you remember the slap in the face that Jesus gets from the religious professionals of his day because he spends his time and he eats his meals with, pro- with those that are labeled prostitutes and sinners. And the religious professionals come to him and call him scornfully the friend of prostitutes and the friend of sinners. Jesus doesn't run from the disgrace and doesn't run from the shame. He shares in it. He steps into the lives of those people, and he suffers disgrace in the eyes of many in order to meet with healing and hope those very much in need of it. Jesus doesn't come and say your sexual and relational sin doesn't matter. Instead, he comes saying that it matters deeply, but it doesn't have to have the last say in your life. There's one story um, that puts this in a particularly poignant way. This is in John 8, the first part of John 8 about a woman who's caught in adultery. If you're familiar with that story, um, you'll see a textual note in your Bible that, that this isn't in some of the earliest manuscripts, so we don't know. But if you read the book of John, you will get the sense that it feels like the book of John because the Jesus as he's portrayed here looks so much like the compassionate Jesus in every other part of the book. But let me say this. In it, this woman is caught in adultery. And she's hauled in front of Jesus by this angry mob. We don't even know where the man who was caught in adultery has um, escaped to, but there she is, caught. And the people who bring her to Jesus say, You know the law. She's committed adultery, and according to the letter of the law, she deserves to die. She deserves for us to stone her right here and right now. If you remember Jesus' reply, it's interesting. He doesn't say, she doesn't deserve to die. It's not that serious. It's not his reply. He looks at them and he says, "Um, he who is without sin, if you are without sin, then go ahead and pick up the first rock and throw it. And all the rocks gradually drop and everybody wanders away until finally it's just Jesus speaking to this woman. And he says, where did they go? Isn't there anybody left here to condemn you? And she says, no. No. And he says, well, then then neither do I condemn you. In other words, I forgive you. And then he says, go and sin no more. Not your sin doesn't matter. Your sin matters greatly. Our sin matters greatly. And our adultery, whether it's literal adultery or adultery of the heart, is what took Jesus to the cross. We can never say that our sin doesn't matter, but we can say that God's forgiveness and love and the healing that he offers runs more deeply than than even that offense, that he brings healing to broken sinners like us, even in this depth of our own lives. The gospel is good news for sinners, and that means it is good news for adulterers of all stripes, and that means adulterers like us. Now we're going to pray in a minute, and then we're going to come to the Lord's table. It's an appropriate thing for us to do today because part of what happens in the Lord's Supper, part of what we're going to partake in right now, is this picture of what at the end of Revelation is called the marriage supper of the Lamb, when Jesus Himself is wed to his people, the church. That marriage fraught with all the dangers and with all the sin that we see in our own lives, God still says that is the picture. And I'm going to perfect the picture of marriage by showing you that I marry my people. He says the only thing strong enough to picture my love for my people is the love of a husband for his wife. And when we take this meal together, we are looking forward to something as well as looking back. We are looking forward to the day when we have that wedding feast with the spouse who comes to us in all our adultery. And forgives us and makes us whole. And makes marriage what it was always meant to be. He offers that in this meal. Now let's pray and then we'll partake together. Let's pray. Father, we do pray that you would bring real healing and real hope into our real and broken marriages. May we taste deeply the forgiveness that you bring. Pray for those of us who feel caught in our sin that you would gently lead us to repentance and faith, and those who feel caught in the hard edges of a hard marriage, that you would breathe hope and life, and that you would sustain and bring real healing. And we ask this of you, Jesus, friend of sinners and our great physician. Amen.